Hello, my name is Noah Kahan, and welcome to episode three of Infrastructured, where I talk about part two of my Amtrak trip across the country. In the last episode of Infrastructured, I interviewed Yona Freemark, a doctoral candidate of city planning at the MIT School of Architecture and Planning. We spoke about the Invest in America Act, the federal transportation bill that was passed by the House of Representatives nearly four months ago. If you have not listened to the last episode, I encourage you to check it out, especially if you want to hear about the legislative future of passenger rail in the United States. So I'm kind of a nerd when it comes to passenger rail in the U.S., and I want to explore the idea of what it means to declare Amtrak a democratic mainstay of American public life, like the post office, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and the public library are. It seems these institutions and others are being slowly destroyed or defunded or privatized and no longer rooted in any kind of solidarity or common purpose. The danger here lies in that democracy is being invoked to project freedom against something rather than freedom as a collective solidarity and civic religion of doing something together for everyone. Many young people feel that they cannot take the Amtrak Northeast Corridor between Boston and Washington, D.C., because it's too expensive, and others won't take Amtrak from New York to Chicago because the trip takes too long. When I took that trip, it took 19 hours. That's crazy. So let's further subsidize the Northeast Corridor travel for young people and build high-speed rail from New York to Chicago with the full faith and trust of public money from the Treasury. We can do that. However, this requires political courage. Amtrak is America's passenger railroad service and was founded in 1971 by an act of Congress that consolidated all passenger railroads into one and took over the transport of passengers from freight carriers. At the time, Amtrak was set up as a corporation to make a profit, but this was never feasible. So different laws were passed and the language changed to allow Amtrak to essentially break even in its operations. But even when that was not possible and Amtrak lost money, Congress year after year questioned its relevancy and discussed the defunding of long distance rail and the separation of the Northeast Corridor from Amtrak, which would all but ensure the demise of the organization. And so Amtrak should not be run based on demand and profit maximization, but run to prioritize service and to serve the needs of the general public. Luckily, the Invest in America Act included language to clarify this point, but the law has still not been passed by the Senate and is unlikely to under this current administration. In this vein, government should never be run like a business. It should be run like government because profitability is a highly problematic barometer of determining if government services should exist. I believe that to truly have robust and democratic public goods means operating public infrastructures or institutions of everyday life at great expense to government, but at little to no cost for the people 
who already pay taxes ostensibly for such services. Investing or not investing in infrastructures like Amtrak, or even housing, healthcare, schools, potable water systems on the local, state, and federal level shows what is and is not prioritized in society, and furthermore shows what we do and do not value or care about. The reason why long-distance routes have never been defunded is because Amtrak is a lifeline for millions of Americans in rural communities across the country, like the post office, Social Security, and Medicare, Amtrak is extremely popular amongst Americans. Unfortunately, because of COVID-19, Amtrak and even public transit across the board have had to begin cutting service. Many long-distance Amtrak routes are no longer providing daily service and are being cut to three days a week or are not even running at all. I may add that Congress is more than willing to bail out airlines, but not Amtrak or public transit. This is crazy and certainly, certainly shows where priorities lie. Bailing out for-profit corporations take precedent over funding public goods. On another note of importance, the act of using any public good, like public transit or the public library, is highly civilizing in that it socializes us to understand that public goods we use belong to all of us and reproduces such thinking. And for children and young people who ride Amtrak or travel on the public bus, doing so allows them to develop more acute social awareness. It also exposes them to the various mini-interactions, from saying hello to strangers, the courtesy nod, pardoning yourself before brushing past someone, politely asking for a seat on a crowded bus. It is how they enter the public sphere. And especially for children, even just paying the fare on the bus or handing the conductor the ticket on the train imbues them with a sense of self-importance just by participating in civil society. On my Amtrak trip, I incessantly looked out the windows of the train and saw the world and thought and inevitably learned and thought of how there could be more access to passenger rail across the country with using already existing freight and passenger railroad infrastructure. And now I'm going to tell you about what I saw on part two of my Amtrak trip across the country. The story of my Amtrak journey left off arriving at Chicago's Union Station. I stepped down off the Lakeshore Limited with my rucksack backpack and walked down the platform towards the entrance of the station. I have this visceral memory of the smell of diesel exhaust from the two locomotives at the front of the train, as well as just how loud they were. There was this crackle sound as I walked by the locomotives. They were cooling off, I guess, from the long journey they had just taken. I had a couple of hours before my train to Whitefish, Montana, so I waited on one of those long wooden train station benches in the station's great hall, while also admiring the high vaulted ceilings. I was there for around 30 minutes, observing the general business of the train station, people eating before their next departure, or people on their phones or listening to music. There was no big board that clearly showed the train departures, and I was a bit apprehensive about the potential of missing my train, which only runs once a day. 
There was a loudspeaker, though, and people who were boarding trains lined up next to the information desk in the center of the hall, with rope lines indicating the queue. I was a little more relieved after understanding the process. In New York, travelers would wait and obsessively stare at the big board. The moment a track was called, people rushed to the gate, vying to be the first in line in order to get a good seat. It was like feeding time for cats or farm animals. Anyways, now that I understood the process, I decided I had time to take a walk around the general vicinity of the train station. I remember it being unseasonably warm that day, with a thick, polluting smell in the air and this stickiness that I had my coat against my skin. I ended up walking to a CVS I saw across the street and picked up some oatmeal-flavored Cliff Bars and a bottled smoothie for the long train ride ahead. I was a little unsure of when I would be able to get my next meal. So Chicago is the hub for pretty much all Amtrak routes. Three routes come from the East, the Lakeshore Limited, the one I took, the Cardinal, which goes from New York City down to Washington, D.C., through the Blue Ridge and Allegheny Mountains, across West Virginia and Ohio, and then up through Illinois and into Chicago, and the Capital Limited, which departs from Washington, D.C., traverses Pennsylvania, and links up with the track the Lakeshore Limited runs on, beginning in Cleveland, Ohio. The other routes from Chicago include more long-distance routes than local services to Michigan and within Illinois, the train that Jeff and John were on, who were the two brothers I met on my, on my journey from New York to Chicago, were transferring to the California Zephyr, which goes across the country to Emeryville, California, just outside of San Francisco. The long-distance routes from Chicago are the Texas Eagle, which goes down to San Antonio, the Southwest Chief, which goes to Los Angeles, the city of New Orleans, which, as you may have guessed, goes to New Orleans, Louisiana, and the Empire Builder, which is what I'm taking, and has its terminus in Seattle, Washington. I chose to take the northernmost Amtrak route out west because I've always wanted to visit Glacier National Park in Montana, as well as Seattle. It was now time. Like boarding an airplane, I lined up and showed my ticket before walking down the platform to the train car I was assigned. The Empire Builder is a double-decker superliner and has an observation car, a dining car, a snack bar, and even showers. I was fortunate enough to have a small roomette with a seat that turned into a bed. As I got to my roomette, a train attendant came by to acquaint me with the train and took my dinner reservation for later in the evening. We pulled out of Chicago on time at 2.15 p.m., and we were on our way. The beginning journey through Illinois, Wisconsin, and Minnesota was quite uneventful since there were only a few hours of light left within the day. I had a 7 p.m. dinner reservation. When over the loudspeaker they called my reservation time, I queued up, and the host assigned me to a table with three random people. The booth seats faced one another, so minding my own business was not an option. I ordered the classic meal in the dining car, Amtrak Signature, USDA, or United States Department of Agriculture, Certified Steak, 
with green beans and rice. One of the most memorable parts of the journey were the Amtrak meals because I got a chance to meet many different kinds of people. Small talk was how most conversations started though, but as we all asked where our final destinations were and why we were taking the train, the conversations became rich engagements with complete strangers. I was able to learn about why people took the train long distance. Many people just wanted the joy ride or had extra time on their hands. Others were taking this train for the first time, while others take the train regularly or commute to see family. Later in the night, we had our first smoke break slash refueling stop in Minneapolis, Minnesota. This break gave everyone on the train a chance to take in some fresh air. Although by the time we hit Minneapolis, the weather was frigid, so I didn't spend too much time outdoors. That night before shutting my eyes, I spent a good amount of time staring outside the window at the night sky and falling to sleep listening to music. The following morning, I awoke to the announcement over the intercom that breakfast was serving. I opened up the shades, looked outside my roomette window, and saw we were in the middle of a blizzard in eastern North Dakota. Visibility was low and the snow flurried against my window as the train bustled forward. The contrast of the dark-colored, solitary freight cars on tracks a couple dozen yards out against the white snow began to paint a picture of where I was. Past the foreground of freight cars and locomotives was a landscape of flat land with the occasional farm silo jutting out. I stepped out of my roomette and walked a car over to the dining car. Sitting down for breakfast, I had a great view of the storm, eating scrambled eggs, bacon, potatoes, and grits with a good old cup of coffee. I covered my grits with butter and pepper, as was suggested by the folks sitting across from me. I was not a big fan, however. Once the meal was over, I took a coffee to go, and I went back to my roomette and got ready for the day on the train. I picked up my book and journal and headed to the observation car, where many people on the train spend their day. The clouds dispersed and the storm ended, and I was finally able to see clearly outside the large windows of the observation car. Being mostly distracted by observing different kinds of people sitting and minding their own business in a book or watching a movie on their tablet, I was unable to focus on my own book. We soon stopped in Minot, North Dakota, where we had our next smoke break. As I stepped off the train in below freezing weather with just a fleece and sandals, the outside of the train was all glazed over in ice, like a classic glazed Dunkin' Donuts donut. We stopped for around 30 minutes. I got off the train with my sandals, but I had to go back inside a couple of times or so to warm up my feet. I wanted to soak up as much fresh air as I could before getting back on the train. Outside, I observed Amtrak personnel replenishing potable water and baggage handlers helping offboarding passengers with their luggage. The station depot in Minot abutted forest and was not that interesting. The conductor announced five minutes until the train would depart and I got back on the train. I went back to the observation car and continued reading the book On Fire by Naomi Klein, 
which is about the climate crisis and the roadmap for a just transition away from fossil fuels and to renewable energy. For the rest of the morning, we were in dry barrenness of central and western North Dakota. We entered oil country, where fracking infrastructure like gas flaring structures and pump jacks remained consistent until we reached Montana later in the day. In the afternoon, I was sitting in the downstairs snack bar area reading the Naomi Klein book when the sky in a baseball hat, blue jeans, and jacket, no older than I was, sitting across the aisle from me, asked what I was reading. I told him simply it was a book about climate change. He was intrigued, and he came over and sat down across from me and put his hand on the table. I gave him the book to read, The Flap Jacket. He read it with a sense of curiosity and intense interest. I asked what his name was, and he said Thor. Like the Marvel comic, I replied. Chuckling, he said yes. I asked him why he was on the train. He was on his way home to Idaho, coming from working in the Bakken Shale oil fields fracking gas. I chuckled to myself because the Naomi Klein book is talking directly about workers like Thor and how to transition fossil fuel jobs into renewable energy jobs or jobs in other industries to fight the climate crisis. I asked his opinion about it all. Granted, I was a little nervous about what his reaction would be, but he was candid and said he would kind of prefer a just transition. Working in oil fields are dangerous, and his job, which has to do with the rig that goes into the ground to drill for oil, is one of the most dangerous jobs there is. He did, however, say that the job in renewables, though, would need to pay a similar amount he is receiving currently, which is in the six figures. We ended up talking for four hours or so and eating together. We then parted ways and agreed to remain in touch. Train relationships are weird because there is a good chance you'll never see that person again, even if you have a meaningful conversation. However, we have remained Facebook friends and stay in touch from time to time. Like the journey from New York to Chicago, there were more delays because of freight traffic, and we ended up being three hours late getting into Whitefish, Montana. Instead of arriving at 9 p.m., we got in around midnight. Throughout the night, I stayed in my roomette reading and relaxing, and as we entered Glacier National Park from the east, with my lights off in my roomette, I could see the white snow-capped peaks in the dark sky from my window. We ultimately pulled into Whitefish, Montana at 12.05. I departed the train and went to pick up my rental car to drive to Columbia Falls, where I was staying for the duration of my visit. The next morning, I had literally the best cup of coffee in my life at this cafe, Azul Coffee Bar in Columbia Falls, and ate some really good eggs. Of course, Glacier National Park was spectacular, and I made perfect timing on my trip because the park was going to close to the public four days after I arrived. And three days later, I hopped back on the Empire Builder again and took the train overnight to Seattle. When I looked out the windows of the Lakeshore Limited and Empire Builder, 
I imagined a country that has robust rail connectivity. I imagined a government that actually encourages and mandates time off so people can travel on the rails on long distance journeys throughout the country. A new kind of tourism in the way that contextualizes leisure in the spirit of Woody Guthrie's song, This Land is Your Land. A call to see the country, the national parks, towns and cities that belong to all of us. This is not lofty fluff, but can go along with policies for a Green New Deal and transportation that prioritize passenger rail as a public good, as a right to all. And this concludes episode three of Infrastructured. You can find more about my trip on my Instagram and follow me at Kahan underscore. Thank you again for tuning into episode three of Infrastructured.